Barefoot and bleeding, two teenage boys made the gruesome climb over Sonoma's Bottle Rock Mountain, led by two U.S. soldiers. The rocks shred the soles of their feet, while the man ahead walked swiftly in his boots, and the boys tried to keep up as the man behind them stabbed at their backs with a sharp knife fixed on the end of his gun. The soldier in front noticed the native teens wincing in pain, attempting to step carefully, and stopped, instructing them to sit down. The soldier opened his pack and took a handful of something out of a box. As he approached the boys, he instructed them to put their feet out on a log in front of them, and he began to rub the substance into the boys' feet, then tying a cloth around. It was salt. The soldiers stood there laughing, and the boys cried in pain. For two hours, the men rubbed salt into the wounds where they had been stabbed in the back. Lieutenant Lyon's forces of U.S. soldiers and militia men had continued throughout the area, hunting down escapees and killing any natives they came into contact with. After three more days of captivity, the head soldier released the boys at the lower lake, leaving them some meat and hard bread, which the boys mostly abandoned as they ran for dear life, under the impression that they were still being followed. The teenage boys sidetracked and climbed high peaks to scan the surrounding area for stalkers, only to run again all the way home. The boys arrived home in hopes to see their mothers and sister, only to find their blood scattered over the ground like water and their bodies left for the coyotes to devour. They sat under a tree and cried until dark. Last time in Chapter 10, Part 2 of Queens of the Mines. It would be known as the Bloody Island Massacre. Benjamin Madley said in his book, An American Genocide, that there were not less than 400 warriors killed and drowned at Clear Lake and as many more of squaws and children who plunged into the lake and drowned through fear committing suicide. So in all, about 800 Indians found a watery grave in Clear Lake. Hours and hours passed since the last gunshot, and eventually everything went quiet. No more footsteps of the soldiers, no more cries, no more gunshots. It was silent. Nika's mother opened her eyes and looked around. Seeing it was all clear, she lifted Nika from under the red water. Blood was everywhere, and everyone was dead or gone. Queens of the Mines features the authentic stories of gold rush women who blossomed from the camouflaged, twisted roots of California. This is the final chapter of season one. And this is the final episode of the chapter. We will finish the story of the Queen of Preservation today. I am Andrea Anderson, and this is a true story from America's largest migration, the Gold Rush. The preceding episode features stories that contain adult content 
including violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners or secondhand listeners. So, discretion is advised. Chapter 10 The Queen of Preservation, Part 3 A month had passed since the massacre. Anika and her mother had been surviving alone in the wilderness, in the rock crevices, caves, and mountaintop pools, seeking protection from the supernatural world that surrounded them, gathering food and medicinal plants from the holy mountains where supernatural power dwelled and visited them. Among the coyote, their ancestor and creator god, and the culture hero of the Pomo tribe. During that time, the Pomo land around the lake and beyond were taken over and homesteaded by the members of the militia, some of them prominent members of society. The Pomo survivors lived on in small bands, most living as slaves to local rancheros. The orphaned children of the murdered natives were hidden from the settlers who were looking for slaves. Good money was paid for such. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Columbia Mercantile 1855. Columbia Mercantile 1855 is creating your Rika moments for every shopper. At first glance, it would appear a living museum until you look closer in the clever Gold Rush era aesthetic, you will find a treasure trove of gold standard products for your modern day life. Now more than ever, locals are discovering the amazing reimagined real working Gold Rush era general store. And Teresa, the owner, has not changed or increased prices since the beginning of this COVID crisis. To better serve the community, the Mercantile 1855 has tripled the amount of food and beverage ordering since the shelter-in-place began. Teresa carries a mix of quality international and local products to replicate the diverse provisions of a 19th century mercantile. It is common to hear, wow, I didn't expect to find that here in Colombia. You can support local producers and there are gluten-free vegan, and dairy-free options, and she takes EBT. She also has been really, really awesome at following all the COVID guidelines and making sure to keep her store a safe place for you to shop so you can feel comfortable. Right now, you can find the artwork by Sarah Ann Graham, which was inspired by this podcast on display at the Columbia Mercantile 1855. Her paintings of some of our favorite queens are there on display. They're absolutely beautiful and they make excellent Christmas gifts. If you cannot get to the store, you can check her out at sarahanngram.com. The Columbia Mercantile 1855 is located in Columbia State Historic Park, located at 11245 Jackson Street near the St. Charles Saloon, and it's a great place to keep our local economy moving. In a time like this, it's really important to shop local, and the Columbia Mercantile 1855 is friendly, welcoming, and fairly priced. Open daily from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Thank you again, Teresa, for all of your support as our longest-running sponsor for the entire season. I appreciate you. 
Okay, back to the story. On April 22, 1850, just weeks before the massacre, an act entitled the Act for Government and Protection of Indians was passed. The act allowed settlers to continue the California practice of capturing and using Native people as bonded workers and provided the basis for the enslavement and trafficking in Native American labor, particularly that of young women and children, which was carried on as a legal business enterprise. The law provided for the forced labor of loitering or orphaned Native Americans, regulated their employment, and defined a special class of Indian crimes with punishments. Basically, it allowed white men to enslave any Indian they found just walking around without any means of support. The Native person held no rights and could not testify in court, and nearly every Indian in California suddenly became a candidate for slavery. I would like to pause a moment to point out slash remind everyone that natives then had a totally different idea of what was indeed means of support. They lived off of the land and had for thousands of years. And if you lived off and with the land, you did not need or want like these new foreigners. Regardless, the natives would be snatched up and charged as vagrants. When they faced the justice of the peace, they were sold at public auction to work as laborers without pay, aka slaves, for the next four months. Compensation was to be paid to the men who brought the natives in for captivity. They paid for heads, scalps, or ears of natives. At one time, you could earn up to $25 for turning in a native's male body part, and just five for that of a woman or child. Millions were paid to private militias by the state officials in bounties. Villages were raided, women and children were kidnapped, and supplies were stolen. California's first governor, Peter Burnett, announced that California was a battleground between the races and that there were only two options towards California Indians, extinction or removal. The only way we will be able to mine in security is if all of these people are exterminated. Quote unquote. Legislation in California passed, granting over $1 million for the reimbursement of additional expenses that the hunters of the natives would incur. The same legislation followed in the federal Congress, allowing federal funds for the same purpose. The purpose? Genocide. Retired Sonoma State University Native American Studies professor Edward Castillo, who has written of the initial years of the California Gold Rush, said, Nothing in American Indian history is even remotely comparable to this massive orgy of theft and mass murder. The California Gold Rush led Americans to rape the land, to exploit its provisions, and then used those provisions 
towards the efforts of the extermination of those who had lived there for thousands of years. And it didn't stop there. They exploited their women. They exploited the Mexicans. They mistreated the newcoming Asians. All of this deeply planted seeds that grew into the roots of a new California. Gold's a devilish sort of thing. You lose your sense of values and character changes entirely. Your soul stops being the same as it was before. Six years after the massacre, the remaining Pomo were moved onto small rancherias by the U.S. federal government. Their relocation was known as the Marches to Round Valley. The Pomo were sought out from the foothills and forced by gun and whip through the valley, crossing the Sacramento River and by the Sutter Butte. Many men, women, infants, and children drowned in the march while crossing the river. Some escaped and remained hidden for some time, taking on Mexican names and blending into the Mexican-American communities. Two years later, in 1858, it was common to read in the newspapers the opinions and promises made by California's U.S. Senator John Weller, who said, the natives will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man and insisted that the interest of white man demands their extinction. Lieutenants Lyon and Davidson were both later promoted to army generals during the Civil War with the approval of Abraham Lincoln. Lyon became the commander of the Department of the West, a position previously held by John C. Fremont. By 1873, the number of natives went from 150,000 to 30,000 due to the murders, the disease, the starvation, and the dislocation. This was not a battle lost after two civilizations met and disagreed. This was genocide sanctioned and paid for by the state and by federal officials. There is a list of over 100 genocidal massacres done by the United States against indigenous people of the Western continent and accountability has never been claimed by the United States government or its military forces. Why? because extermination was policy. Mark Sumner said this, There we go. Americans have pursued our God-given right to slaughter people by the millions, to take their lands, steal their sacred places, ignore treaties, engage in massacres, and make really pretty movies about it. Because manifest destiny. This carries some extra punch, considering that Trump just delivered a downbeat, angry, divisive speech while standing in front of a mutilated mountain that was given to the Lakota for all time. Seriously, manifest destiny is a phrase that should be up there with Holocaust in the dictionary of terms that any government should be ashamed to use in describing its policies. Archaeologists believe that the Clear Lake Basin has been occupied by Native Americans for at least 11,000 years. 
bloody island now stands as a hilltop, a mound that rises from a dusty lake bed. The upper lake basin was drained and reclaimed for agriculture in the 1930s. The island remains a sacred testament to this sacrifice of innocence, and it is a California state park. On May 20th, 1942, 92 years and five days after the Bloody Island Massacre, the native sons of the Golden West installed a historical marker one-third of a mile off of U.S. Highway 20. The Native Sons is an Anglo-American organization responsible for many of the placards and historical landmarks that are scattered throughout California. This plaque noted that this was the site of a battle between Calvary under Captain Lyon and Indians under Chief Augustine. Right off the bat, we know that is bullshit. It was no battle. This was a massacre. This memorial, once again, whitewashed genocide with the old cowboys and Indians bit. There are not many visitors here as this event has gone unmentioned in our California history textbooks. It also states the wrong date, placing the massacre on April 15th, 1850, which was a month prior. The marker was desecrated in 2002. Red paint representing blood was poured all over and around it. The red paint remains. A new plaque went up in 2005, erected by the Department of Parks and Recreation and the Lucy Moore Foundation, giving a much more accurate history, noting it was in fact not a battle, but rather the location where a regiment of the 1st Dragoons of the U.S. Cavalry, commanded by Captain Nathaniel Lyon and Lieutenant J.W. Davidson, massacred nearly the entire Native population on the island. The full text of the plaque goes on to state, Most were women and children. This act was in reprisal for the killing of Andrew Kelsey and Charles Stone, who had long enslaved, brutalized, and starved Indigenous people in the area. If you travel a quarter mile down a street called Reclamation Road, you can see the massacre site close up. In 2020, while monuments are being taken down and both sides of history are coming to light, the 1942 plaque remains to represent how alternate and incorrect versions of the past have long been told. A reminder for us as individuals to be responsible as listeners, caretakers, and creators of a shared global historical narrative. An annual sunrise forgiveness ceremony in honor, remembrance, and forgiveness on behalf of the Pomo people that perished and those that survived the Bloody Island Massacre has been held since 1999 at the 1942 marker. The ceremony is held every 20th of May, not the date of the massacre, but the anniversary of when the 1942 marker was installed. According to Clayton Duncan, who is Nika's great-grandson, the ceremony is also to say we are sorry to our ancestors 
whose bones and ashes were shown such disrespect. It is to honor her, her prayer, and all who died at Bloody Island. Candles are burned and tobacco offerings are made to the Pomo ancestors whose bodies were cremated and buried only later to be used in the construction of dams around the upper lake basin. If we can know and learn from each other to accept the truths of the old world and new, perhaps our children will not see the colors of skin, the manners of our worship, our cultural heritages as characteristics that divide us, said Duncan. Perhaps they will see them as the attributes that unite us so that we can all work together to fix, mend, and heal the earth, our mother. Doing this, we know in our hearts from the wishes of our ancestors that it will bring back the balance. At six years old, she weighed not much more than one of the cannonballs that tore through the people like a boulder through willows. Crouching beneath the water, beside the bank, she sipped air through a reed to maintain her life. Above her, an old world was ending, washed in blood. Those are the words Clayton Duncan used to tell the story of his great-grandmother. Lucy Moore, or Nika, and her survival of the events at Bloody Island. Nika or Lucy Moore, is now a hero to the Pomo people. She became a mother, a grandmother, a great-grandmother. And as an elder, her husband would play old native songs as Nika cried, telling the story to her grandchildren. Nika never stopped praying for her cousins, her aunts, her uncles, her people. She lived to be 110 years old, and in her old age, she prayed every day to forgive the United States. Our state and our country claims to be a leader in morality, yet we still benefit from the results of these atrocities. Resources and land stolen. Gold extracted from the natives' cherished land funded this powerful nation, kick-starting its wealth. The price was genocide. When will we all acknowledge that the United States basement is flooded with the blood and the tears of the native victims, whose only fault was to be living in their own country and therefore stood in the way of invasion? No human life is ever irrelevant. So, have our textbooks been self-serving of the American myth they called Manifest Destiny? Hopefully, I have answered the question. Again, my deepest sincere apologies and acknowledgement for what has happened to each and every member of California Indian tribes, their ancestors, their descendants. You do not deserve this. There is an African proverb that I am reminded of often while reviewing the history of the United States and the indigenous people. Until the story of the hunt is told by the lion, 
the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Until recently, historians and the public have dismissed conflict history and important elements that are absolutely necessary for understanding American history have sometimes been downplayed or virtually forgotten. If we do not incorporate racial and ethnic conflict into the presentation of the American experience, we're never going to understand how far we've come and how far we still have to go. No matter how painful, we can only move forward by accepting the truth. Frontier pioneer Eliza Inman wrote in her journal in 1843, If hell laid to the West, Americans would cross heaven to reach it. And she was right. I'm Andrea Anderson. Thank you for taking the time to listen today, to listen to the entire season of Queens of the Minds and all these women's stories. Stay tuned for 2021 when season two begins. And in the next few weeks, you can find The Gun Diaries and Eats of the Minds, two books available on Amazon. Eats of the Minds featuring 1850s gold rush recipes, kind of revolving around the women of our story, and The Gun Diaries. The illuminating diaries and letters of Dr. Louis C. Gunn and his wife Elizabeth. They built the Gun House Hotel and lived in it and were supreme abolitionists. The book is derived from records of a California family, journals and letters of Louis C. Gunn and Elizabeth Lee Brayton Gunn and reimagined by Queens of the Mines. It has extra added history and haunting stories of the present hotel. Queens of the Mines was written, produced, and narrated by me, Andrea Anderson. The theme song in San Francisco Bay is by DBUK. You can find the links to their music, merchandise, as well as the links to our social media and research and merchandise at queensofthemines.com. Thanks for listening.